You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. We call it slicking the bean, choking the chicken, giving yourself a hand, auditioning finger puppets. There's a million and one names for the old five-finger shuffle, and yet hundreds of millions of people are unable to sauce the taco due to disability, aging, or illness. That's where we come in, if you'll pardon the phrase. At Bumpin', we've created the world's first accessible sex toy, so people with limited mobility, hand issues, and disabilities can celebrate Palm Sunday just like everyone else. If you agree that everyone deserves sexual pleasure, help us spread the self-love and fund an orgasm for those in need. Give the gift of the big O at getbumpin.com. That's G-E-T-B-U-M-P-N dot com. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends, and thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories, the show where once every two weeks, at least right now, you get to shine a bright light on disability stories with me. So, as we always say here, what do we do? Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get today started, shall we?
And I want to thank you for sticking around while I move and transition, transition the show to once every two weeks. I just needed some time to rest my disabled body and do all the things that I have to do around being disabled. I mean, on top of doing this show, I do speaking gigs and I do my care and I have my body that I have to tend with. So I really appreciate you still listening. And I have to say, since we released once every two weeks now, we're still getting really good numbers within the first couple of days of our release. So I'm really, really excited that I can take that time to tend to myself and be as disabled as I need to be. And we're still going to have bonus episodes and different things popping up here and there. But the two weeks, every single two, you know, two, every two weeks is really, really something a lot more manageable for me. And I really appreciate you supporting the show in that way. If you want to support the show, and I would love your support, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark, and you can pledge as little as $1 a month or up to $5 a month or more yearly amount if that works for your budget. You can do that as well. And you will get an awkward shout-out from me on the air saying thank you for your pledge. So I would love that if you could do that, if you're able to. Support us financially. If you're not able to do so financially, that's fine. Leave us a five-star review wherever it is that you podcast. I would also really appreciate that. I also want to let you know that I'm always looking for new guests to come on the show and to record with me. So if you want to come on the show, you can email me directly at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. I have a sign-up form, but it's being kind of wonky, so don't don't trust that. Just email me at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and say I want to be a guest and I will find a way to slot you in so you can be a guest. I love telling disability stories and this show is for you. So please consider coming on and sharing your disability story with me because your story is really important and I'm really, really proud to use my platform to share your story. So let's do that. But now, on to the show. This is an episode that I meant to put out way sooner, and I completely, I just, it's one that I had meant to do months and months ago, and I kept realizing that I hadn't put it out. And so I'm kind of ashamed that it took me so long to release the episode, but I am so excited for you today to meet and talk with my friend, and someone who I really admire the work they're doing, my friend, the multi-hyphenate disability advocate, entrepreneur, and content creator, and the CEO and founder of Diversibility, who is rebranding disability through community, my friend, Tiffany Yu. We have a really important conversation about all the layers of disability that she experiences and all the ways that disability is read for her, um, and her. she shares her experience of disability and so much more. We have such a deep powerful conversation around disability grief, around um, the way disability is understood, around how sometimes you feel like you have to hide your disability, being an entrepreneur, so many different things. Tiffany is such a powerhouse in the disability community. We recorded this on December 7th, 2021, and we are now releasing it on November 27th, 2022. So I'm sure things have changed since we recorded this, but It is a powerhouse interview with a disabled person sharing their truth. 
and being really honest about what it means to be disabled, what it means to be an Asian American disabled person, and, and some of the cultural differences around disability we talk about, and, and a whole bunch more things. Tiffany is really amazing, and it was such a pleasure to sit down with her and talk with her, and I think you'll hear just how powerful she is in our interview, which I'll play for you right now. So, without further ado and no more rambling, here's my interview with multi-hyphenate and my friend, Tiffany Yu, right here on Disability After Dark. Tiffany Yu, hello! Hello, how are you? Good, so happy to have you on Disability After Dark. Finally, we had to reschedule this, like, what, four times? Because disability is real? Um, Disability is real. It's the realest. So I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you for coming on today. Um, And I know you from our, like, social media dealings together and some stuff that we've done. So I know who you are. But in case anyone's listening and and is like, who is Tiffany Yu? Can you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Tiffany, and my pronouns are she, her. And uh, I'll start. Yeah, how far back do I go? I'm the daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant and a refugee from the Vietnam War. Uh, I bring that up because intersectionality is really important in my work and has influenced a lot of how I viewed my own disability and my own sense of identity. And I became disabled at the age of nine. I was involved in a car accident. My dad, who was driving, unfortunately passed away. I ended up acquiring a slew of injuries, including shattering my femur and my tibia, left leg, in case anyone was curious, and uh, and permanently paralyzing one of my arms. And uh, the bones of my leg healed. The nerve injury in my arm did not. And much, much later, I'd be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which I would actually attribute to how my family dealt with or didn't acknowledge the disability or or tried to fix it and and not having that space to really process what had happened and the changes and the grief, grief of my body. So uh, today I run a community business or a social enterprise called Diversibility. We are focused on elevating disability pride, advancing disability leadership and advocacy, really just trying to create more Andrews and more Tiffany's in this world. Oh, yay. Well, I think that's great. And I mean, that's how I know about you and how, why I was like, I need to have Tiffany on the show immediately because I follow all the stuff you do on anti-ableism work and all the stuff that you talk about. And like we, we you know, we, we like and retweet and post each other's stuff all the time. So I was like, I want to I want to have you on the show. But I did. I never knew that you acquired your disability through an accident. Mm, yeah. So um, the the formal name of my injury, it's called a brachial plexus injury. Uh, two ways, two main types. Uh, one is called OBPI and O. Oh man, this is the hard part. I think it stands for ob- obstructic. And don't quote me on that. You can Google it. Google it. Actually, I was like, we should create a shirt called Google it. Um, <laughs> and, and OBPI, um, happens during childbirth when the doctor pulls the arm out first during a vaginal birth. And I want to highlight that that type of injury is entirely preventable. Uh, It's not that you were born and you couldn't use one of your arms. It's actually that something happened during that birthing process to the child. And so what happened to me actually 
Uh, it's rare to meet people who have what I have, which is called TBPI, traumatic brachial plexus injury, uh, which usually happens. Um, it can happen during motorcycle accidents, uh, football players, skydiving, uh, car accidents. So uh, I kind of straddle this interesting line between acquiring my TBPI, my traumatic brachial plexus injury at nine, when a lot of people who acquired TBPI are already as adults, right? They're motor, they're on their, their motor, they got their motorcycle uh, or they're, you know, in the car. Um, and so it's, it's like childhood trauma, but not, not the, not the at birth version of it. Yeah. And I mean, that's such a big thing to have acquired a disability at nine, because it's not like you were like two or three where, you know, you might not remember it as clearly at nine, you're like basically a little person, like you, you've, you've formed kind of your, you're starting to form your identity, starting to like understand things more. It's a big thing to go through at nine. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, I know you talk a lot about grief in your work and it's something that I'm starting to talk a little bit more about, which is this accident to me, isn't just is, and I don't want to minimize disability grief, but disability grief is there, right? It's the acquisition or the, the loss or the change in my body. There's that type of grief. Yep. There's the grief of losing my dad, like grief in its most, uh, in how many of us understand it, which is which is the loss of a, a, lo- a loved one or a human being or, or a pet or just a loss of, of something that was living. Um, but it's also the loss of childhood innocence. And uh, I have been, so now I'm 33. I've been meeting a lot of people and, and also this conversation around, you know, a congenital disability and a, a disability at birth. Uh, versus, and, and I feel weird using the word versus cause, cause it's not one or the other, but, yeah. but, um, but, par- but comparing that to acquire, acquiring your disability as a child or later in life. But one of the things that, yeah, one of the things that I think about a lot is that's a lot of grief for a kid. And I have been meeting you know, now I'm 33. So I have some friends who have kids that are around that seven to nine age range. And when I meet their kids, I just, I honestly can't believe that that kid was me who went through what I went through. Yeah. And like, you know, having to, and again, you know, I, I'd never thought about the layers of grief that would come with that being nine and losing a parent. That's a grief that I'm lucky enough to have not understood and but you know having to also go through the grief of losing ability and then cha- and then all of that at nine and then trying to navigate that I was going to ask this later but I, I mean we can ask it now like how has all those layers of grief like what was it like to try to navigate disability grief and that kind of grief and all that stuff at such a young age and then growing up knowing all that and trying to navigate it as you grew up yeah, such a good question. So, Andrew, this is probably another part of my story that you may not know. I didn't tell anyone about the car accident for 12 years. I wore long sleeves all the time. The people I went to elementary school with knew, but by the time I got to middle school and high school, actually, no one knew about the car accident. I told everyone my dad was away on a trip. Oh. Um, and that was modeled to me. So the, so the reason why you said, okay, Tiffany, like, give us your intro. And I started with being the daughter of Asian immigrants is within within the way that I grew up, uh, everything is within the family unit. And my mom actually said something to me over Thanksgiving, and she said, 
she said, I don't want anyone to know about our struggle. So right now I have a niece and this is very public. I have a three-year-old niece who unfortunately has stage four cancer. She just finished her fifth round of chemo. And uh, my sister has started a Facebook page that has 7,000 followers for, for Zoe. She's got a hashtag swag. Um, really wherever we can get people sending us positive vibes for my niece, like we'll yeah. take whatever we can get. But my mom hasn't told any of our relatives and doesn't oh. want any of them to know. So I think even just showcasing something that's happening now showcases what happened for nine-year-old Tiffany, which yeah. is we don't want anyone to know about our struggle. So what was modeled to me by my mom, and I also want to share, my mom is the most incredible human, strongest human being that I, that I know, I, I actually, I would not want to be her because she, not only was she a refugee from the Vietnam war, she came here, supported herself through college and her graduate degree through scholarships. Mary and my dad had four kids when I was nine, no longer had another parent to care for, for four human beings who were totally dependent on her. She supported all of us through college. Like she I mean, really quickly became a, a single mom and had to like do that's that. I mean, that is a lot. It, it's also, a lot. that should be a book. Like somebody, is she writing a book? Are you hoping to write a book? Well, she, doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't want anyone to know about our struggle. Right. Uh -huh. And so, and so what's actually fascinating, I, I want to add another layer, which is my mom isn't supportive of my work. Um, and isn't that supportive. is not supportive. And, and that's a uh, hard dynamic where I go home every day and she's asking me when I'm going to get a real job. And oh, I feel, no. and, and oh. I can't wait to like show her my receipts from this year because I actually feel like this was economically for me, you know, and, and the struggle is real as a disability advocate to really figure out like, how can we support ourselves financially because being disabled is expensive and doing this work, we do it because it's necessary, not because doing this work is emotionally expensive. It's fucking exhausting. And we do like, <laughs> We do it every day, like you, me, Spencer West, all the advocates that you talk to at Diversibility, we do it every day. And it's not, it's a thing. It is really a yeah. thankless job within the community. The community expects that we'll do it. And then the people outside the community also expect that we'll do it. And so like no one's saying, hey, thanks for doing it. So the fact that your mom, <laughs> like I, I, I get it. She doesn't want anybody to know. Because, because, because this story, this story isn't just Tiffany's story. And, and this is the thing that if I could, and I have no regrets for the journey that I've been on. I've, I've done so much healing, but actually the reason why I mentioned my intro that I was diagnosed with PTSD so late, I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2019 is because I had no outlet for healing. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's why I also want to share like human beings, my mom can exist in these contradictions of being such a heroic person to me of what sh the cards that she was dealt, but like, also your hero, but also like unintentionally, unintentionally, the, yeah, the, unintentionally the villain because you're like, mm. how are you not believing that what I'm doing is a real thing? Like, it is but a also, real thing. but also, how did you model for me that as a nine year old girl, it wasn't okay to tell people? To, it wasn't okay to ask for what I needed. Um, yeah. I mean, I spent so long, you know, it's, um, I was doing some research on this. I think there's something called selective amnesia for people who experience, who experience trauma the way that I did. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember much from nine until 21 because I'd hide, I had to hide. 
um, I couldn't be the fullest expression of myself. Um, and, and that's, and that's really hard, right? I, I see, I see you and your sister and co-founding this, this company together and I'm the youngest of four and don't, don't have that dynamic. And on the one hand, it's, it, it's funny. Cause I, I talk to, I talk to people sometimes and I'm like, I look at my white friends and I'm like, I wish my family were like that. And then I go and talk to my Asian friends and we're like, hugging isn't a thing that happens in our family. And and how can we just be okay that our families are what they are? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I've heard that a lot from other people that I've spoken to who are Asian, who, who have disabilities. They've said, they've told me very similar stories on this show about how their, how their disabilities are hidden. Now they're told that if they, express disability in any way they're somehow told they're weak like they've i've heard a lot of stories similarly of like how how being able to express any kind of disability amounts to a problem so i can imagine like for you doing the work you do also being disabled like that's got to be that's going to be really hard to navigate that in a family that doesn't want to talk about it yeah i I think it's something that uh, so recently, a couple of weeks ago, diversity was recognized. Um, we won an award uh, for Asian entrepreneurs or Asian small business owners. And during my, I'll, I'll share two stories. And one is during my acceptance speech, they let us give an acceptance speech, which was so fun. Um, I actually dedicated this award to my dad because my dad lived with epilepsy that no one, no one vocalized. Uh, he had seizures. Again, we no one could talk yeah, about it yeah and and so actually what i said in the speech i said um this award is for my dad because he never got to a point in his story where he could be loud and proud about his disability and stand up here and tell you that he lived with epilepsy and so as his daughter here i am to say i'm not only asian but in this identity i'm also disabled and i want you to see me in that because there was just so much stigma at that intersection but then the other thing that happened is I just projected my mom at that whole event. I felt so out of place. I was so nervous. You know, I talk for a living and I have never been more nervous to, 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 to hold that microphone and, and address a bunch of pe- a bunch of people who look, who look like me, who I, I just felt my mom's judgment. And I was like, Tiffany, this is you projecting. Everyone wants you to be here. You belong here. You deserve to take a space. You're friggin' winning an award. Yeah. Um, but I was winning an award in an identity that I'm still trying to grapple with this intersection. That you're told you're not allowed to be and that your mom doesn't believe that you are. And I mean, of course you are. Was she, did she come to the awards show? Did you like, did, no, I, but can I tell you what I'm going to do? Is yeah, gonna, yeah. I'm going to give her the award for the holidays. No, but uh, I will share something else. So I, sh- I took a picture of the award and it's this beautiful, like glass, really heavy one, you know, like high quality. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I took a picture of it. Um, by the way, are you hearing these noises? Nope. Okay. Sorry. Do you have a ghost in your house? And, and hopefully you have good editing. Uh, or maybe you just keep this in. I'll but keep I- it in. It's wrong. Really. <laughs> it's, it's what's happening. Um. And I took a picture and I sent it to my mom and my mom goes, what is that? Because, and the award says Pathfinder Award awarded to Tiffany Youth uh, for her work at Diversability LLC. Yeah. And she goes, why did you receive that award? Uh, is it only for high school students? Like, what was the criteria? It, it Yeah, it was like a line of of inquiry that felt like interrogation that she didn't understand why what I do would be recognized. 
Um, so, so yeah, it's, it, I, and, and I don't want to diminish, I was almost going to say it is what it is with, which is like classic toxic positivity, but yeah. I, I've, I've come to a point where I, and so it wasn't only me in the car accident. Um, one of my brothers and my sister were also in the car. And, uh, the next question that everyone asks is, is everyone else okay? And I challenged that question because what does okay really mean? Does okay mean that they don't have visible disabilities the way that I do? Because I w- one could argue that mental health disabilities are much more pervasive uh, and much more hidden, but impact your daily life way, or at least for me, my mental health disability impacts my daily life way more than the fact that I can't use one of my arms. So, so, so I don't, so I don't know if anyone, everyone is okay, you know. But I mean, I, I also think that it's frustrating for you as a disabled person when people immediately default to, is everyone else all right? Like, like, are they still able? I mean, you're you're disabled now, but are they okay? Is everyone else mostly still able-bodied? Like, that's what they're unintentionally. That's maybe what they're asking. Yeah. They're saying they're saying like, is everyone else okay? I mean, you're the sick and disabled one, but what about everybody else? Are they good? So, like, I'm that I'm sure that question gets really annoying, and there are layers to that. Um, and there's so much more of this I want to unpack with you, but I want to kind of go back to like just understanding how both your mental health disabilities and the physical disabilities how do they impact your day to day? Good question. So, I will say when I started this work, so I I became, I guess I. I started using the label disability advocate in 2009. The car accident was 1997. Okay. And uh, so now you know how old I am. Well, I've already said I'm 33. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, car accident 1997. So 12 years, right? 12 years, not telling anyone the car accident. In 2009, I was like, oh, I can't, I can't carry this weight of being hidden. Yeah. And, uh, and I led with the visible disability. I, I think, you know, so much of my work now is really how can we not only highlight highlight the diversity that exists within the disability space, but also that disability doesn't just look like one thing. So I led yeah. with the visible disability because a lot of times, I, I guess back in 2009, I, st- I still, I, I guess I believed that that was the look. Um, is that it's I have it's easier to get people, unfortunately, because of ableism, it's easier to get people's buy-in if you look disabled enough to be dis- to look disabled so if i roll up my wheelchair and i say i have disability needs no one's going to question me but if you if somebody walked walked in off the street and said i have ptsd but you can't see it they would be judged harshly so I, I yeah that, or I, or they would get they would get the you don't seem like you have ptsd yeah um, you look fine i didn't notice anything shit like yeah totally yeah so, like, so it made sense why you would leave with that yeah so um not being able to use one of my arms uh, surprisingly surprisingly impacts my life in so many different ways. So uh, right now I'm having this conversation with you uh, with my Yeti microphone because I'm a I'm a professional podcaster and I've got some things and I'm in a um, I'm in a phone booth in a co-working space. So I'm holding my computer. I'm also holding this Yeti. How do I open the door? Um all of my arms are full. Uh, well, which actually I guess would be this a similar, but anyway, it, it's like, and then I open it with my foot. So, um, I, anyway, it's a long bar on the door that I could stick my foot and, and thrust it. So, and pull it open, yeah. And pull it open. Um, but I will say I started, I found my way onto TikTok about a year and a half ago, like many people did. And when I first started on there, 
I thought that my account was going to be an account that showed people how I did things with one hand. So a lot of people don't realize this, but I use my feet to stabilize so many things. Um, opening a jar, um, opening a large package. And I, I guess I never really thought that that was different because no one has really been witness to that because we, I, I live in a, in a world where people operate with two arms, or if I'm with a friend, I can ask them for assistance. But yeah. a lot of times when I'm on my own, I use my feet to stabilize things. So, so yeah, so it made me realize that there are, there are so many things that just assume two arms. Um, and one, one that I'll share that's kind of funny and maybe not funny. I don't know. Things are funny to me. Um, have you ever had like microwave corn? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it comes in this little plastic thing that you put onto a plate, at least the one that I, from Green Giant, not sponsored. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, and then you put it in the microwave and on the packaging, it's got like a little like crease in it and it shows a picture of two arms. Even when you go to like a, a bathroom and it has the roll of, of, uh, um, of paper towels and it yeah. shows you like, please pull with two arms. Like both of those scenarios just remind me that here, here's another instance where I'm going to have to get creative about how I navigate this environment. Wow. I never thought about how ableist that was until right until you said that. And now I'm picturing every time I've been in a public bathroom at the airport, that's what you see there. And you're right. Well, now they've got the sensors, which are super helpful for me. So um, I will answer the other part of your question, which is my mental health disability. So, I will say one of the things that I learned is that I, uh, what PTSD does for me is it elevates, it elevates anxiety depending on whatever the trigger is. And it transports me to a reality that is so real to me, so viscerally real in my body that I am now more aware when that happens. But when I was having my trick, when I, when my PTSD symptoms were their, were their worst, I was in the reality of my trauma, of feeling the depths of how unsafe I felt. Um, and to be transported in that consistently, I don't know, like fight or flight state. Yeah. Uh, is It's exhausting. Yeah. Um, and I will say, I still, it's not that I, so I came across this tweet and it says about 10% of people who experience trauma experience something called post-traumatic growth, which is they have like new, uh, new perspective on life and, and new hobbies and appreciation of the world. Um, and, and I feel like I said that kind of, when I said it, it, I wasn't trying to make a joke of post-traumatic growth, but I do feel like I have experienced some level of post-traumatic growth because of the amount of work I've done to heal through my trauma. But my PTSD, I don't think that I've like healed from PTSD. I still have moments where I, where I, uh, where I experience, where I get triggered and I am, you know, in the depths of my PTSD symptoms. But now I am aware to say, okay, Tiffany, you have heightened anxiety right now. Um, and this is, you are in a reality. It, it's weird. It feels kind of like matrixy. It's like you're in a reality that isn't your reality. Um, so how can you, you know, whether it's, how can you turn to your coping mechanisms um, hopefully healthy ones, but also sometimes there are some unhealthy ones, but how can you turn to your coping mechanisms in this, uh, when you're in this elevated state to know, oh, okay, like whether it's, yeah, so I'll, I'll just pause there. What are some of your, what, what are some of your like fun coping mechanisms that you, <laughs> you fall back on? 
Um, the one that is actually the most helpful, I just got a wearable bracelet called Apollo Nero. And what it does is you either wrap it around your wrist or you wrap it around your ankle. And the way they've branded themselves is Apollo Nero is like a hug for your nervous system. So it sends gentle vibrations uh, through the wearable, depending on, you know, which setting you, you pick. So there's one called, you know, there's one called sleep. There's one, I don't know, there's one called relax. And within each one of those settings, it'll say, you know, use this after a long day of travel or after, you know, a high intensity workout or after you've been feeling really stressed, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I will say that probably the last time I felt really elevated levels of anxiety was in September. And I was dating a guy at the time and had told him about he has anxiety as well. And he he also bought an Apollo Nero. And I remember texting and I said, my anxiety is like off like levels are just, you know, off the really, charts. Yeah. Off the charts. Yeah. Thank you. And he was like, turn that Apollo up to a hundred. Um, and so you uh, actually, you can, um, you can turn the level of vibrations on the Apollo Nero from like 15% to a hundred. So a hundred percent is like really going at full force. Yeah. And, and it's just a combination, you know, cause you know, I, I know that I can turn to my breath, but when you're in that moment, it's so like, you, you need an external thing to like, Okay, I have the bracelet on. The bracelet's gonna help me. You need yeah, something the bracelet. Else. Like, also, not sponsored, but maybe one day Apollo Nero will sponsor me because I've told so many people about it. Um, it's yeah, yeah, it's been really helpful for me. Um, I have other friends who have shared some things that work for them that I that haven't that I haven't yet uh, been able to internalize. So one is you know just repeating "I'm safe" to yourself a bunch of times. Or, you know, doing the cold water bath. Um, but yeah, for now, Apollo, the Apollo Nero works for me. Apollo Nero, I'm also looking for new sponsors of this show. If you are listening and you want to be an ad sponsor or you want to sponsor anything of Tiffany's or Diversibility, like just, hey, we're here and we will take your sponsorship money. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I didn't know any of that story like like and you i love how you just dove right in there was so much to like which which story the whole car accident or well all of of the above (laughs) all of the above i didn't know half of that most of it really so like and i'm just and you know the the part that keeps sticking out for me from everything you said was like having to hide that for 12 years that's a big that's such a heavy weight to carry because like how like how did you do that what did you how did you hide it how did you keep it hidden yeah um I feel my like face getting warm because because just thinking about that time I feel really sad um and I call her I call her nine-year-old Tiffany I feel I feel really heartbroken for her Um, and, and I've gotten some version of this question a lot, you know, how did you cope with, you know, something so traumatic? I didn't. That's why I have PTSD. Hello. (laughs) Um, I, I think it was, um, I think a big part of it was I became an expert masker. Uh, and I have had the fortunate opportunity of, of delivering a couple of Ted talks. And my third one is about toxic positivity, and I used that story of those 12 years as intern- as an example of what internalized toxic positivity looks like. 
because anytime anyone would ask me about my arm, I would deflect or I would start crying. And the I would get stares. I would get stares. Um, so if people, so if people ask, I start crying, which, you know, is, is understandable the amount of pain that I had experienced through that car accident and of not course. having an outlet, but it also just reinforced, reinforced to other people that they shouldn't ask people about their difference. Um, and, and it's this tricky line, right? Because, uh, you and I have chosen to be vocal and visible about our disabilities yeah. and, and use our platforms to educate, but how can we also make it okay that people, some people aren't there. And for 12 years, I wasn't there. Right. But, but how can we understand the nuance that my disability happened because of something so traumatic that not only not only disability came out of it, it like I <laughs> and also like I can I can't imagine you wouldn't resent your disability in some way because your disability didn't cause this. But as in my in in young Andrew's nine year old brain, if I lost my dad and also became disabled in the same instant, I would hate being disabled. I'd be like, look what you took from me. Not only mm-hmm. did you take, not only did you make my body different then I know how to deal with this and hide this. You took away a person that I could talk to about this, mm. like that I could have couldn't like, so I can imagine that no wonder you would want to hide it. Cause like, fuck, it's so painful. I don't, I don't, I, yeah, almost... I, 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 I will also share that. Um, one thing my mom did do is, uh, I mean, she did a lot of things. So remember she's, she's a hero. <laughs> um, what I do remember from that 12-year period is the number of physical therapy appointments I went to, acupuncturists, surgery, occupational therapists. It was the narrative was all about fixing and that yeah. something wasn't right with my body. Again, this is modeled by my matriarch, who now is also my patriarch, right? Who who is also the person I'm entirely dependent on. Yeah. And so if if what is being modeled to me is that there is something wrong with my body and the only quality time I get with my now only living parent is trying to fix my body, then how does that make me feel about my self-image and my body, right? Wow. So so I feel like it's, it's I, I acknowledge that, you know, and, and I will say I didn't, I didn't really talk about the fact that my dad passed away in the accident until maybe like 2018. Um, it, so it was, it's, it's still fresh for you. Like it's still, yeah. Well, because there was so much grief, like, where do I even start? Um, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 and I, and I will also share that um, 2016, I met another disability advocate named Sarah Fader who runs a mental health or mental illness nonprofit called stigma fighters. And when I met up with her for coffee, she called the car accident trauma. And I had never used that word in my vocabulary. Uh, uh, and 2016 right now is uh, not, ni- uh, I can't do math right now, but uh, 1997 until 2016, I never called the car accident trauma. Wow. Um, and then she was the one who uttered those four letters, PTSD, which was also, you know, I had, I had told myself or falsely believed that time heals all wounds. And I have now updated that saying to be time plus work (laughs) heals wounds. 
Um, and so I thought that since it had been almost 20 years since the car accident, I was fine, you know, but I yeah. had just masked, you know, I had suppressed all of this trauma in my body. Um, and, and through the, the exploration of kind of becoming this disability advocate in 2009 was really just focused on how can I heal in, in my own story and heal in my body first, then let me look at loss of childhood, loss of my childhood and, and my dad. What was your reaction when you were having coffee with this person and they said drama and like, did you, did you just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, cool. Okay. And did you, uh, did you like categorize it in your brain or was it like a moment where you like stopped and were like whoa Mm, good question so it was actually meeting sarah that made me realize that maybe i need to go to therapy so so also i also so meant so mental health uh at least within my asian family just is not a thing and so no therapy no nothing not we we have not even talked about the Carkson as a family. Um, what even now? Yeah, I mean, every once in a while it'll come up, but it's just again. I come back to and I posted this on LinkedIn. Like I ju- I just think back to the fact that even as of Thanksgiving, which was a couple of weeks ago, my mom said I don't want anyone to know about our struggle. Oh, um, no. And and so. You know, because a lot of times I tell people like, you know what? yeah, I didn't tell anyone about the car accident. And then they're like, well, did your mom explicitly say that or, you know, X, Y, and Z? And and then like Thanksgiving 2021, she said it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so um, so when I was growing up, she didn't really say like, don't tell anyone about the car accident. But, she, but she modeled that for me when she told everyone that, you know, her husband was away on a trip and and that I should wear long sleeves all the time and that I went to all these doctor's appointments, which reminded me that something was, quote unquote, not normal about our bodies, which I would now argue that the fact that my body exists means that it is normal because, it, you yeah. know, and I we can language whatever, but like my body wouldn't be like this and your body wouldn't be like this if it wasn't supposed to. So here yeah. we are. Like, come yeah. on. <laughs> exactly. I, I just, the whole intergenerational trauma thing that you're like, that your mom went through and them having to, having to tell, to tell you that you couldn't talk about it. And then the only quality time you got to spend with her was through like, like being fixed rehab sessions. That's got That's so, there's so much there. Like part of me wants you to go home to your mom and say like, mom, we have to have a serious talk about real, real stuff right now. Just because maybe like if she got it out and she grieved too, it sounds like she hasn't really done that yet. Maybe if she did that with you, then you could find a pathway forward. And I don't know, maybe not, but it just feels like there's so much there. Yeah, I'll I'll share. I mean, I've I'm I'm very open about. I mean, you can probably tell I'm very open about most things. Um, my mom, uh, I saw her. I saw her in August and. Uh, and this was the first time in a year and a half because because of pandemic uh, that yeah. I had seen my family. And my mom was like, I'm depressed. And I go, okay, like, are you going to therapy? Like, what type of support do you need? She goes, what do you mean? I was like, you just told me that you're depressed. She's like, what are you talking about? Like, she said that she was like depressed as a joke, right? And like, you and I work in a space where like, lang- like I don't, so, yeah, we don't I would, weaponize disability. No, if you um, said I'm depressed, I would immediately be like, cool, how do I help you? Yeah, <laughs> and was- so... um. And so I think that's another example of how just like intergenerationally mental health doesn't exist. And I I went to a panel recently where the moderator of the panel said, uh, for our generation growing up, when we were crying, 
we were literally just told to stop crying. Yep. And now I feel so hopeful that the conversation is changing with our generation and this next generation that they are saying, no, like that, like validate me in my experience. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah, I, I, I think, I think there's opportunity to change. Um, and I think I, I will also say I spent a long time. I feel like this is like turning into like a, a session about me and my mom. I spent a long time <sighs> wanting some kind of reconciliation yeah, and hoping and trying to do little things to, to, to change, to change our relationship. And there's a, a, so, uh, so I learned Mandarin in college, but there's a, there's a phrase called Xiguan, which means like, we're accustomed to this. And a lot of times when people see me interact with my mom, they're like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe you talk to your mom that way. Um, and then when I bring it up to my mom, she's like, oh, Xiguan, like, we're just, this is how we communicate with each other. And, um, I think, I think she also just modeled for me that like my relationship with her is, 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 um, it is, I was, you're going to say, I I hear, I know you you knew, you knew that it was coming. (laughs) Um, and, and I got to a point where I stopped trying to force something that my white friends had, you know, the the hugs and the like white picket fence, like happy Christmas family thing, the Rockwell painting that we all see that we think is like, Oh, do we, I want that. And like, and, yeah. and, and I'm learning that my mom, my mom shows love in other ways. And I think a lot of the, a lot of my growth area over now, th- over the next couple of years is how can I redefine what intimacy looks like? I had only just previously limited it to uh, a romantic relationship, right? And Mia Mingus has this term access intimacy, right? We have access intimacy yeah. within disability spaces, and what does intimacy look like with my mom and with people I have close relationships with that aren't romantic? So, um, so yeah, she helps me with my taxes and, uh, <laughs> and, um, I taught her how to use Craigslist recently to sell some furniture. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just different. And I, I'd like, I, I like, I like, I like where it is. Good. Good. Um, this is not a question I wrote down, but when I was thinking, and as I was listening to you talk, as I said at the beginning, I've talked to other guests who are of Asian descent who have told me very similar stories about how disability is like not talked about culturally and not really addressed in a big way culturally in the way that we do in like North America. Um, do you think that as a, as an Asian person with disabilities, do you want to do small things to change that narrative or do you want to like, bring a sense of like community to the Asian disability community that there doesn't seem like there is right now? Yeah, great question. I'll say two things. So one is I recently had had my mind blown by Mia Ives Rubel or Rubley, um, who is another really incredible Asian disability advocate. And she said, because we are disabled, we can never be the model minority. And that blew my mind because not only do we know that the model minority is a myth and if you don't know it, Google it, Google it on a shirt, um, like search model minority, like myth model minority. Um, they're just, you know, socioeconomic disparities, et cetera, et cetera. But because I, I, 
I feel like I spent so much of my adolescence and I think the reason why my mom co- comes up so much in conversation around the intersection of being Asian and disabled is because I literally did everything that I could to be that model minority for my mom. Um, and even if you look at my mom, like she, to me, is the epitome of the American dream. Um, yeah. If she were born in the U.S., I would advocate for her to run for president. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I, yeah, I went to Georgetown, which is a great school. I, um, I worked at Goldman Sachs. Uh, my background's in finance, so I did investment banking. I worked for P. Diddy. I was sitting in on boardrooms. I had oh, my own cool. office. Like, sounds super cool. Like, but then when I look back, I'm like, I did this because I was trying so hard to fit into this mold so that my mom could go back and brag to her, you know, her friends or whatever. But because my body is disabled, that was a source of shame for her, right? And so yeah. when Mia said that on a panel recently, that because we are disabled, we can never be the model minority, it it just made me realize that I'm never going to be who my mom wanted me to be because of the way my body is. Well, it's so frustrating because with diversibility, like I see what you're doing there and I see all the great stuff you do. And I've been on panels that, that you've put together and like, I, I see, I see what you're doing and you're doing, you see it, <laughs> you see, yeah, you see, you see what I'm doing. I am so, I'm so proud and in awe of everything that I, that I've built. Um, all of this is for you, Andrew, it's for all of your disabled listeners, because I see the magic in this community. Like I'm, I'm fighting this for me. Right. Yeah. Um, which is but why I'm I mean, going to get, I'm going to give my mom the award for, <laughs> for the good. You should, you really should. I, but I, I, I can imagine. And even listening to you, there's a pang in my heart of like, I bet, I bet I wish Tiffany could, could be like, mom, I'm doing the same thing I was doing before. I'm pulling in huge numbers of people. I'm getting all these people to rally around me. I'm doing what I, I'm doing similarly to what I was doing before, but I'm doing it in a, in a, the disability space. And I wish I could share that with you. Like, like it's such a contrast to my mom who the minute I said I was doing disability, she was like, well, first she was like, well, that job, that job's not stable enough. Find a government job and do it, do it where you can like work for the government. And then when she saw me do a talk back in like 2013, she came to a talk I did and she watched me do an hour of sex and disability and command a room for an hour. And after the talk, she went, Oh fuck, you're fine. I'm not worried about you. You got this. And it was such a, Mm. a nice moment because it was like, Oh, okay. You're in now. And so like, like, now she supports the sex toy company. Now she, we've been on BBC talking about sex work and disability together. Like, like she's so in it now. And part of me wants for you to have that same kind of like moment with your parent to be like, see, yeah, I'll be yeah. all right. And I like knowing, knowing that you probably won't have that because as you say, your relationship with her is. So you probably won't have that. That, It'll be okay, but it hurts me as a disability advocate to know that you won't get to do that. Yeah. And and I also want to highlight that, you know, I feel very celebrated. You know, you and I talked about how this work is tireless. Every day we've got people on disabled and non-disabled people criticizing us, but we are loved as well. And I feel very embraced and seen in this work, both within and out of the community. 
But I think it's also important to name that my supporters are, or sorry, my um, my biggest unsupporters, I don't know, my dissenters, my biggest dissenters are the people right close to home. They're in my home. Yeah. Um, and how me. can we acknowledge that, like, not everything is the accolades that you see or the the events, you know, and and I'll, I'll share two two things briefly. So in 2016, uh, Diversibility, we had our work featured by the Ford Foundation in this really beautiful video. My sister is one of my biggest cheerleaders. So we were at Thanksgiving 2016 or or maybe 2017 I can't, or maybe it was um, maybe it was the holidays. And my sister plays the video for my mom. My sister's like Tiffany or my sister, like at the dinner table is like Tiffany got featured by the Ford Foundation, this like incredibly produced video. She plays it there for my whole family, my mom. And my mom just literally doesn't say anything and then like walks away at the end. And uh, so that was like 2016. And then, tw- and then 2018, um, 2018 was the opportunity that I had to give my first TED Talk. And it was in Bethesda, Bethesda, Maryland, which is where I grew up. So I'm going back to my hometown yeah. and I tell my mom I'm giving a TED Talk and she goes, are you getting paid? And we all know that uh, if you're giving a TED Talk, TED, TED just does not pay. Yeah, so, so, right, it was, it was always, it's always these questions of, um, n- it, it's uh, never good enough, right? So, that's like why monetary I, worth. Are you, is, do you have something to show for this that it's yeah. going to like, and part of me gets that because part of me is like, she's doing the same thing my mom did, which is like, cool, you want to do disability. Are you going to be able to feed yourself? So, I can see like, far far away with what she's asking but for you in the moment when you're like i want to celebrate this with you i don't care that there's zero dollars attached to it like i can imagine that was horribly frustrating i you know if my mom came to me well so i i guess i wanted to highlight that one way or another she's watching um you can't you can't ignore the things that you know like you google tiffany you and there's just a lot of stuff happening there yeah Um, and if she came to me and she was like, I'm so proud of everything you are doing and I want to figure out how, how I can support, I would be like, is everything okay? Right. Again, she's <laughs> one. Like, like I come back to this like Chinese phrase or this phrase in Mandarin, which is our, we're just so accustomed to the way our relationship is. And, um, and I will say, so back to this thing about my mom telling me that she was depressed. She was depressed because she felt like she was a failure as a mom because she couldn't brag about any of her kids. And I think about how she, she how she, she worked she worked so hard to pave the way for me to do the work that I can do. The fact that I can do this yeah means that she's a success. Because it, it takes a level of privilege, like not only is it urgent need for us to become advocates, but there needs to be some systems in place to help support us as well. Of um, course. And, and, and I would be, yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that the fact that she supported me through college so that I didn't have any debt. Uh, you know, I'd probably still be working at the investment bank if I had, had student loans and, and other, and, and that. So um, that to me is why she's a success, you know, and I try, and I tried to communicate that to her when she told me she was depressed and she feel like she failed as a mom. And I was like, there's no way that like you're, I'm successful. Like I can, the only way I can do what I do is because you did all of of what you did. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I just see that I just keep going back to 
the pain of like, mom, I want to sell it. Like the Ford Foundation is a big fucking deal. That's a that's a big deal. To and I want like like we just we we just released our video for our launch video for our toy the other day. And I kid you not, we I was over at my mom's house on this recording like two weeks ago, or no, a week ago, and we the whole family, everybody was around the computer and we watched the launch video together. And there was we like cheered after. So like. Just the contrast and difference of like, I want you to be able to take those big achievements in the disability space because they're so big and be like, look, family that I love, here's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's different and that's yeah. okay. Right. And so I, I, I think this is why I love podcasts as well. Right. Is it, it's not all of us have the same story yeah. and it's, it's actually the fact that our stories are different Right. And, and you, you've got the white family and, you know, with the pick that I've always wanted, you know, and I want like to gather all around and, you know, watch the, the video together and, and cheer each other on. And, and so like, I think with my generation, so I'm the youngest of four. I think, I think with me and my siblings, we're trying to change that. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're but, trying to change that. But it's still hard. And like, my family's mixed actually. My, my dad's black and my brothers are, are, are 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 black and so yeah so but but again the, the culturally it's a different mentality of course and I think that what you're doing in the space is an, as a Asian disabled creator trying to talk about that and starting to talk about that as as much as you have done even on this show today it's an important conversation because it will tell other people who are culturally in a similar spot of like. I have this disability and I need someone to talk to or I want to find a way to talk about it or I want to find a way to like navigate my feelings around it. Someone is listening to this right now going, yep, I've been there. <laughs> yep, I'm there with my family right now. So yeah, I think- and, and, and I've had a couple, I've been on a, a handful of podcasts that are focused on, um, that are focused on Asian Americans or the Asian or the AAPI community. And I remember after one of those podcasts, Afterward, the the host came to me and they said, you know, I really want to bring up this topic within my family because my uncle has has this disability and and I don't want him to feel shame around it. And I was like, a conversation is a two way street. So if I just go and I'm like, I want to talk about this thing, I want to bring it out to light, I don't want you to feel shame. And the person who is living in their disability story, you know, isn't at that part of their story uh, and might not self actualize. Like, how can we make how can we make that okay too? Right. And so for me, it's like, I know that I have been able to make an impact within my community, within the disability community and people who follow me. And I might not be able to have that same level of impact within my own family. And that's yeah. okay. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 I guess it's like coming back to like wherever your spheres of influence are. And, and one of the things that I've learned is that it just takes too much energy to try to convince someone who is, potentially never going to see me as a as a whole full valuable human being to try and convince them otherwise um even if that person is is my mom (laughs) yeah um and i I don't mean to laugh you know i i i I think that Brene brown has this quote and she says um i read it in one of her books and she was like uh, when she's like, for most of us, our first layer of support is through our family. And when you don't have that, then the whole system kind of is, is on, is on fragile ground. 
And I think, you know, I, I don't know if she says this later, and I've read some of her stuff, but not in a long time. I don't know if she goes here too, but also the first layer of shame is also in your family. And so all of that stuff is like totally layered. But I want to shift gears because I had another question that just popped in my head and I was like, I want to ask you now. So you, we talked a minute ago about how how even the people that don't support us are often within our community. And I feel like in the disability community, there's such a fracture. I feel like there's such a divide between what we're allowed to say, what we're allowed to talk about, the language we're supposed to use, how we're supposed to talk about certain things. And it, as an advocate in this space, in this often thankless job of, of, of advocacy that we do, I often feel really frustrated because I'm like, I want to have the different conversation. I want to have the conversation that isn't the status quo. And, you know, the status quo in disability spaces, I feel sometimes, is like able-bodied people are the worst. And so I want to take that conversation and shift it a bit and be like, no, they're not the worst. They just need education. They just need support. How do you feel in that space, like in the disability space, where you're where you're trying to appease and follow along with what the community is doing, but also charter your own path? How do you feel doing that? Mm. Such a great question. I mean, Andrew, one of the things I appreciate about you and the content you create is I think I think you are going into the spaces that we haven't we haven't gone into, right? That that intersection of disability and sexuality is actually one of my big growth areas, something I'm still exploring because fascinating fascinatingly enough, I think I just made up that word. As an Asian woman, I feel hypersexualized. As a disabled person, I feel desexualized. So I am, I'm at this tension of hypersexualization, desexualization all yeah. at the same time. Like where does that end up in the middle? <laughs> um, at sexualization? I don't know. But, um, yeah. but I think, you know, and I, I'm smiling because it's code switching in a way. And one of the things I realize about me as a disability advocate is that I started my career in the corporate world. Um, I worked at companies like Goldman and Bloomberg and Revolt. And when I was there, I, I, I don't know, I, I, guess, I guess the way I want to answer this is everyone is right. Uh, that's, that's how I start most of my work and most of my conversation. And I approach my work with a layer of curiosity of trying to understand why you think the way that you do. Because my hope is that no one is intentionally trying to harm. And like you said, Andrew, it might just be a level, a lack of education or a lack of accessibility of our own experiences to people who don't share them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think about, I mean, and Andrew, you didn't even know, you didn't even know I acquired my disability. The number of people who have assumed that my, my physical disability is from birth. Um, yeah, I've, I've met a lot of people who have known me for a long time who said, oh, I didn't realize it was from a car accident. Right. And part of that is because I didn't tell them, you know, so, um, so, so yeah, I, I think for me, it's how can I just have a level of compassion that everyone is, that everyone, we're all like trying to be better to each other and we're going to mess it up. We're going to F it up. Um, And, and that's okay. I think that, and I posted this last night on my social media. I said, you know, 
the problem I see with disability advocacy on social media specifically is that everything that we post, and me too, I've done it too. I'm, I'm totally guilty of this. Like we post it as a fact and it's period and it's done and I'm putting it out there and it's a tweet and I'm the rightist. And there we go. And the minute someone comes along and says, well, what about this way? You as the poster and the content creator go, how dare you challenge my thing that I made? I worked so hard on this. How dare you? And so I think the disability community, because we're finally finding a voice, particularly on social media, on TikTok, on Instagram, on Twitter, we're finding a voice. So when one of our own comes in the, comes in the hen house and says, I don't know if I like this part of this. Have you considered this? We all go, oh, I worked so hard on this. How, what, how could you say it's wrong? But I feel like, we have to, I feel like what we're doing in a lot of disability spaces unintentionally is we're dividing ourselves from each other. If mm-hmm. I don't agree that, if I don't agree that we have to use this language only to describe disability and I say, oh, maybe we can use special needs or maybe we can use handicapped in certain, in certain contexts, given who the, given whoever is saying it. Maybe if we looked at things a bit different, if we looked at people's tone when they say these words, Maybe it's different. If I bring up that as an option, people go, you're just being ableist. How dare you? Mm. No, but I'm actually just saying, can we just turn it, turn it a little bit this way and talk about it differently? Because maybe like, I feel like if we don't have the big conversations and we don't have conversations in the disability space that are uncomfortable and the conversation I feel that's happening in the disability space right now is, or at least what I feel is that Every able-bodied person is bad. Every able-bodied person is the oppressor. And I know this is not true, but this is what a lot of social media posts make you feel when you read a disability advocate say, so-and-so was an ableist. Fuck the ableist. It's like, well, okay. that's I get it. I understand what you're saying. But I also wish you would like, how do you hold your hand out to the ableist and say, can I help you change that story? Mm. Well, one thing, I, just, I mean, so many, so many things to unpack there, but what I remember, I remember talking to another disability advocate a couple years ago and I was like, I'm really afraid. I'm really afraid of Twitter. It just disability Twitter just feels like a really angry place. And one thing she came back to me, she said, um, it's also not our place to tone police other people because there's so much hurt in our community. Um, how can we let people express themselves the way that they do? Like there are people who come to me, actually, um, uh, not only do I have people say, you don't speak for me. And I was like, I don't. So, so you're welcome to go create your own content. And then I had an, another group of trolls kind of be like, you're so ableist in all of your content. And I was like, well, actually I am like, I'm, and I'm doing the work to try to unlearn, to try to yeah. actively unlearn, you know, this yeah. is not, we, we exist we exist on a spectrum and I feel like, you know, by creating this like right, wrong binary or this good, bad binary that like, because Andrew, you and I do this work, we're not ableist. Like, I think that is virtual signaling that. that oh, just, yeah. Like, and you know? It's <laughs> so, not at all true. Like we are, we both of us are and will continue to be in different times in our lives and different times in our day <laughs> ableist. Like that's not. And I, I always say to people like, I'm ableist every day every single day and I have to work on that every day just yeah. like you do and just because I do this work and I have a public facing brand and I do all the stuff where my face is out there 
doesn't mean I don't fuck it up. It doesn't mean I don't get to be, you know, hopefully called in versus called out because no yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, none, none of it feels good. It doesn't feel good for us to be told that the way we think about things are wrong. But what I remind myself of is, you know, as long as you, Andrew, or as long as I am acting in integrity with myself, speaking whatever truth I knew at the time, then then I just have I just have to be like, this is who was showing up. And I feel confident in that. And you can disagree but this is what I believe, right? And and I think it's just having having that confidence. So the the Ford Foundation video and also the TED Talk, both of those two experiences I mentioned to you, both of those I called my my paralyzed arm. I called it my funny hand, and I have since um, updated my own language because I don't think it's very kind to describe any part of my body as funny. Um, but yeah. and and when I do, I gave permission to a lot of other people to call parts of my body funny. Um, and so, so yeah, so I'm, you know, and, and so what's funny is like that video board foundation. Awesome. But like, I, I don't want to share that video because I, because I use language that I don't use anymore. But at the time, that's how I knew, that's how I knew to describe it in a way that, that I thought was relatable to other people. And now, now I know better. Um, and so now I use different language, you know? And so like, how can we, you know, it's, it's funny because I'm thinking back to like a dating scenario where like someone breaks up with you and they're like, you've changed. And then I'm like, well, if someone ever said this to me, I'd be like, well, I guess I have, like, we're always growing and we're always changing. Like we're not going to be stagnant human beings. And my yeah. hope is, you know, and, and I know that the, the root of your question was really kind of acknowledging some of the infighting that's happening within our community. The way that changes is through more representation and more visibility that it's not just Andrew and it's not just Tiffany. And this is like so much of what I spend my work doing is like, I love the panel that you that you were on with Diversability, right? And it wasn't just Diversability hosting Andrew. There were a handful of other people because yeah. like there are other perspectives that that we want to share and, and how can we use our platform to really highlight all those. And I mean, that this is why like, I'm so excited to be on your podcast because you have you we may have some overlap in our communities, but this may be the first time that some of your listeners are learning about me and my work, right? Well, um, it's the first time I'm listening about I'm learning about your work <laughs> as in depth as I have. So like it's it's fun for me too. Um but I think also kind of what you were saying, I want to just go back to something you said about let don't tone police other people, let them be if they're hurt, let them be hurt. If they're mad, let them be mad. Like and I think that's something that after this conversation, I'll take with me the next time I, I wade into disability Twitter or I wade into disability Instagram and I'll be like, okay, you're hurt. Cool. I'm going to let you have that and deal with it however you need to. And I'm not going to tell you that what you're feeling is wrong because my instinct as a creator, especially if somebody comments on my wall or my tweets or whatever, is to be like, oh no, how do I fix it? Or, oh no, you're wrong. Let me explain to you how wrong you are. Maybe I don't, maybe going forward, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to just let, let it be whatever it is and to keep doing what I'm doing, but not tell you that you're wrong. I like mm. that. Do you, do you want to know what, I, so, um, so there's something called like inner child work for people who are in therapy. And I think a lot about when I feel hurt, what nine-year-old Tiffany needs and what she so desperately wanted was to be seen um, and I think about the people who might be commenting on yours and I, and I actually, I am projecting, I don't want to project, but they may, 
just want to be seen. That might just be them in an attempt to uh, just be like, this is what's coming up for me right now. And you acknowledging it makes me like heals a wound in a way of something of not feeling seen for a really long time. Yeah. Without, cause, cause I agree with you. But, but what's sad is we have to bear the brunt of that emotional weight. Right. So I'm, I'm I like, I, this has taken a lot of work, right? Not responding, doing nothing. It's um, so hard <laughs> for me to do that. And like, there's been some stuff in recent years and I won't go into what it is, but there's been stuff that happened to me in recent years on the Twitter where I, where things went down and I couldn't, I was the one being talked about and I had to just be quiet and I had to just let it, let it all happen in front of me. And I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't converse. I had to just sit there with it. And it was so, so uncomfortable, but you're right. I think I'm going to take that into more of the advocacy that I do. Even if people come at me and, you know, with this toy, people have said things already. It's only, it's only been out at the time of this recording. It's only been in pre-sales for four days. And already people are like, well, we don't, we're not sure about this. And my instinct is to be like, let me explain why. But then also like, okay, you can feel what you feel. Good. Mm -hmm. And I'll keep doing what I do. Um, But how do you think other than just letting them, other than letting the community feel what they feel, how do you think we move onto a different, um, in a different way in the disability community? Yeah. Um, there is some imagery that I, that I reference a lot, which is, um, say you have a jar and you fill the jar with rocks. Uh, and for me, the rocks are either me and my like immediate support system, but then you can pour in sand, uh, and the sand, you know, fills the space. And then even after you put the sand in, you can still put water. Uh, and the reason why I bring that up, you're like, why are you talking about this jar with the rocks and the sand in it is because I trust in our community to fill the space where I can't. Um, and so uh, at Diversability, we have a Facebook group that has about 4,700 members in it. And I'm actually not that active in there anymore because they're the sand. I have to trust that the weight of moving the disability, disability rights and disability justice forward can't just be me and you. Um, and, you know, like you and I have a level of visibility, but I also, you know, I think back to, I think back to the Toyota commercial during the Super Bowl with Jessica Long's story. And do you remember this and, and some of the criticism? I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So, so Jessica was, Jessica was adopted, I I believe from Russia um, and is, I think one of like, has like a bajillion Paralympic medals. Um, And a lot of people called uh, that commercial inspiration porn. But the reality is that is her story. Her story is that uh, her, you know, and, and so like, even in, even in my story, like the fact that I was in a car accident as a kid is tragic. The fact that I'm disabled is not. Right. So the fact that um, that Jessica in this commercial was adopted by someone else, uh, maybe due to maybe due to her disability, that is sad and ableist. Um, And the fact that she's a Paralympic is real. Uh, And and so, like, I 
I, I feel like I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but um, what uh, I wanted to highlight is that being inspiring and inspiration porn feel like the same thing. Um, I can't force someone not to feel inspired by seeing my work or being witness to my story. But what I can do is use my curiosity or my inquiry to use that level of intimacy with knowing something that happened in my childhood that was so transformative for me to go out and be an advocate for me and other people like me in spaces that I'm not in. So, uh, so this is why, like, this is why both you and I like love storytelling is my hope is that people don't forget. Uh, and that all of the work that I hope you do, uh, or I do is for nine-year-old Tiffany, um, is so that the, the things that happen to us that make us feel really alone, we know that we're not alone in those spaces. Um, yeah. yeah I- that that was a lot. What your question your question was, yeah, how do we move forward? Is it's more representation, but it's you know, it was funny. I was on a call with someone the other day uh who kind of works in like the talent uh entertainment media space and they were like, "Yeah, we we really want to get more disabled people, more representation and more visibility. It's not just about the money." And I go, "Well, actually, it, it needs is. to be a combination of representation plus economic self-sufficiency." Like yeah. So, um, so yeah, so it needs to be more representation, but representation and visibility paired with m- more people being able to live the lives that they want in their disabilities. I, th- and that's a great answer. I think what I was asking more was how do you think the infighting within the community, how do you think we, cause I see it so much every day that it's exhausting for me. I'm just like, oh god, like I'm I'm almost afraid to to do the content creation that I do because I'm like, if I post this, is am I going to get slammed with people not liking what I posted? And that's exhausting. How do you think that as the community members we can support each other better as opposed to like, like, fuck you, that thing you said is ableist. Mm-hmm, can mm-hmm. we change that conversation or like, you know, instead of disability advocates who are respected in their own rights fighting about the language that we use fighting about like i feel sometimes we're fighting about such trivial things like if you call me a special needs person and it didn't hurt me why am i going to spend five five to ten minutes fighting with you about how horrible you were that you called me that i would rather let you call me a special needs person gently explain to you why i use disabled and then move on but I feel like if a dis- if a non-disabled person wades into the disability space or wants to learn and makes a mistake, everybody is jumps right on them for the mistake. And I go, I am I as the other on the other side go, cool. I like that you made a I like that you like maybe stumbled a bit. Let me help you up. How can I guide you? And I used to be of the opinion when I first started the advocacy work that I had to be angry, that I had to mm. be mad because that's what I was seeing everyone else do. So I was like, well, if that's a cool thing to do, I'm going to do that. But now I've softened and been like, I just want to give you information. I just want to use my platform to help you so that the next time you don't do that or you do it differently. How do you feel about all that? Yeah. Um, I think the one thing I remind myself of and I try to remind everyone else is that there's space for everyone 
And I think where the hurt and the infighting comes from is, and I'm coming back to this Toyota commercial, is someone sees that and they say, that's not my experience. They see you, Andrew, and they say, that's not my experience. They see me and they say, that's not my experience, which is why I try to go into as much depth as I can about holistically what my whole experience looks like, because my hope is that I never meet anyone who has my experience. <laughs> you know, uh, the shit I went through was so traumatic and I feel yeah. so sad and heartbroken for this little girl um, who is still in me somewhere trying to heal. So, um, so yeah, there's space for everyone. And I, I think it's going to take time for, for that to catch on and, and be viral. But I remember I remember in the early days of diversibility, I was turning to any disability meetup group that I came across or any community. I even went to Alice Wong and I said, Alice, like you're running this incredible community with disability visibility. Should diversibility just, you know, merge itself into there? And she actually was actually the one who came to me and said, Tiffany, there's space for everyone. And then she said, what are you going to do with the power and privilege that you have to have a voice within this community? And the only thing that we can do is speak our truth in our own way. So the fact that people are coming to you, Andrew, and saying, this isn't my experience, that's great. Go share that on your platform, right? Like, like I, I, I like you, spent a long time being really angry. And the thing about anger is that I couldn't just compartmentalize it to my advocacy work. So then I was angry in my personal relationships. And yeah. there was, and, and, you know, that anger actually, to me, I look at this period from like 2017 until 2019 before my PTSD diagnosis, where I was so angry. I was like lashing out at people. And I will say, so Andrew, you and I uh, reconnected recently because, um, diversibility were, we're doubling down on our partnership efforts. And so, um, we, I actually reached out to someone that I was connected to on LinkedIn who, you know, works at an entertainment company to see if there was a way that um, they'd be interested in sponsoring or partnering with Diversibility. And she came back to me and she goes, Tiffany, I love what you're doing, but every single time we've interacted, you haven't been very kind to me. And so, oh, wow. I, went, and so I went back and, and then she said, I don't think this is a good fit. And I went back and I looked at when we connected and it was in that 2017 to 2019 time period where I was not very kind to a lot of people. Um, and that was my own uh, not being seen, living in a reality that I felt so unsafe in. So I went back to her and I said, and I apologize. And I actually explained to her the situation. I said, hey, I and I actually have spoken publicly about this as well. I was very unwell from 2017 until 2019. Um, and so I went back to her and I said, hey, um, you know, I take the partnership out of it. But I want to acknowledge that I was... I was actually not very kind to a lot of people during this time period. And I got this diagnosis and I got the treatment that I needed um, for my mental health disability. So yeah. Uh, and after I got my treatment and, and started to realize time plus work heals some wounds, um, I was like, I don't want to carry around that energy anymore. I'm, I'm tired of being angry at everyone else who is not intentionally trying to exclude me. Yeah, um, that's exactly how I have felt about non-disabled people making mistakes. I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be mad at you. Yeah, I and something wanna. you something you said, Andrew, that I have taken to heart and have repeated is, you know, you. I think there was a tweet that you came out with, um, and and the the version it was something like, um, you said something like, it would be helpful if you told me that you were uncomfortable with my disabled body, 
Because even though I won't feel very good about it, at the very least, it has been vocalized that we can start a conversation about how we move forward. Yeah. And I think about you talking about non-disabled people and even within our own community, us, any of us making mistakes, we have to make mistakes and actually put ourselves out there in order to know how we can move forward together. Yeah, exactly. And I think the disability community is just at the point where they're finding a voice. So we're not ready to acknowledge mistakes because we're still like, hey, we're trying to talk over here. Like, listen to us, listen to us. So I hope in the next 10, 20 years, we get to a place where we can acknowledge that together. But I don't think we're there yet. It's going to take time. And, you know, just I've been thinking about the adage you've been talking about throughout this interview of like, time time plus work heals most wounds. I almost say to you, like, you don't, don't, you don't have to heal everything. It'll be all right if it stays broken. You're, like, that doesn't mean you're broken. But if the wound needs to stay open a little bit longer, that's okay. So, like, to nine-year-old Tiffany and, like, 10-year-old Andrew who went through similar, like, not similar, but ableism as a young kid, I would say don't try to fix it. Just let mm. it be. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say <laughs> one of the things, one of the things that I like about myself the most um, which is a good exercise, disabled or not, um, to just remind yourself of the things you like about yourself. One of the things I like about myself the most is that is how committed I am to my self-growth. And I joked with someone a couple of months ago that I feel like the people who aren't consistently trying to grow might be more happier, might be happier um, because they, they don't have to face the the spaces that they want to grow in. Um, but but I I I want to... Yeah. So part of it is this is where I feel the most excited about how I'm growing as a human. Um, But I also acknowledge like even if you look at the fact that like I didn't really look at um, I didn't really talk about my dad and the fact that he had died until 2018. Like there's a time, the time, you know, it all happens. It's it's like it feels like Tetris a little bit where um, I I find one area and, and that's where I focus my growth. And other areas, you know, might not get the, the TLC it needs at the time. Um, and, and that's okay. So, so yeah, none of us are superhuman. And I, yeah, I like that. I'm, I like that I'm working on healing. I like that. You and I have talked so much and I, <laughs> we said so many things today. And what I love about this conversation is I didn't look at my questions once because we just dove right in and I just looked at them right now. And I was like, cool we've talked about all of this and none of this all at the same time and it's been really awesome so this is such a fun conversation and i love sitting down with you was there anything else any last things you want to say to the disability after dark audience this question's always so hard because then i'm like what do i what do i want people to leave with? okay here's what i want people to leave with i want you to know that you are a whole valuable human being just because you exist. So Andrew gave me a permission slip that if, you know, nine-year-old Tiffany needed needs to sit in her wounded place for a little longer, that's okay. Um, if Tiffany and my Tiffany and her relationship with her mom is what it is and people makes people a little uncomfortable, that's okay. We just sit in it. Um, so just remember that no matter where you are, you are whole and valuable and worthy just because you exist. I love that. And I would also add you're whole as a disabled person too. So you can be wholly disabled, period, the end. And I think that's 
really important. But Tiffany, I didn't know half of the things I learned about you today. This was such a fun conversation that went all over the shop and I loved every second of it. It was so great. Um, how do the people get a hold of you? How can they support you? How can they follow you? How can they do all that? Sure. So if you would like to follow me, um, I am, I'm Tiffany U across social platforms. So that's the letter I, the letter M followed by my first and last name. And if you are looking, if you are feeling isolated and alone uh, in your disability experience and you're looking for peer support, uh, please follow us at Diversability. We have a couple of different communities that you can join. Uh, Andrew's been featured at a handful, or maybe just that one. Uh, I keep thinking that's more. Well, we we love Andrew. Um, we love anyone. You know, the only reason we exist at Diversability is because there are people like maybe some of you who are listening and people like Andrew who are doing such incredible work to try to move things forward. Oh, and, and can I, I say one other thing? Yeah, I know you want to say, okay. So you said something about how uh, it might take another 10 or 20 years for us to, we've just gotten the microphone um, and we're starting to find our voice and our identity as, uh, as a, as in solidarity, as a unit, as, as disabled people. Yeah. And when I started this work in 2009, I remember, and I was actually still using this wording. I introduced diversity and I said, I want to start a movement around disability pride. And the number of people who came to me kind of scratching their heads being like, what is disability pride? How can you be proud to be disabled? This was 2009. The number of people who came to me scratching their heads like that, actually in 2021, I haven't really seen, you know, whether it's disabled and proud or disability pride, you know, I, I think we've got a lot of different hashtags going on. Um, people, I think people more way more people understand the concept of disability pride than they did in 2009 and that's actually what gives me hope that you know 12 years later i can actually see what the change has looked like and i'm yeah. really excited to see what it looks like a decade from now or two decades from now well that's i mean i i think disability pride has so many different different nuances i think being disabled and proud means some days fucking hating being disabled that doesn't mean you're not proud it just means that for today you're allowed to hate it. And I have days, I have every other day is a day like that for me where I'm like, you know what? I don't like this today. And I think the more that we, my job as a disability educator is to like get in the, the valleys of that, like the high of disability, the, the highs of disability pride and the mountains of disability pride. Like, yeah, it's, we're proud to be disabled. The lows are like, what about when you feel like shit about it, but you're still disabled and you have to get through? How do you get through that valley to get to the mountain? So my job is to like sit in the trenches with you and be like, cool, let's talk about that low place for a minute and let's sit there for a minute. Like a lot of my, a lot of my social media is like, let's sit in the low place and just sit there for yeah. a second. Yeah. And I, I love doing that because I still think I'm a proud disabled person. I am just not one of the many who's like, yeah, I love disability. I'm like, yeah, I love disability, but here's five other things I don't like about it. Yeah. And, and I think highlighting that, highlighting that nuance, right? And I think we spent, we spent some time on this episode too, where it's like, I have so many people celebrating my work, except my mom, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> um, we're not, we're not going to win on all the days on all the fronts. And um, I think that highlighting that nuance and that contradiction is like, I want to spend more time in that place. It's not clear cut. Like it doesn't fit into the box. No. And that's my favorite part of doing disability advocacy. And so when I shifted from 
being the angry disabled person at every able-bodied person, I started to shift and be like, what other things are we not, am I not seeing on disability social platforms that I can talk about that are more nuanced than don't be an ableist? Where can we go like underneath all that? And so for me, disability pride is like, let's get underneath all the, all the front facing stuff and go underneath all that and talk about what does it feel like to be proud of disability? What does it feel like to be disabled and incontinent? What does it feel like to have all these things that no one is talking about? And so that's kind of my favorite place is to be like in the dark corner, slowly shining a light on the stuff that we're, that is happening, but we're never talking about. So I hope for you and for diversity that we can work together to do more stuff like that. Cause that's my favorite place. Yeah. Um, this, this again, I could sit and talk with you for like, I know, I, like, I know. Cause you already asked me for my social channels and I was like, I, f- I have five <laughs> other things I want to talk about. Um, but yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. I would, I want to find a reason to bring you back for part two. Cause we clearly there's more we can talk about, uh, but this is so great. And thank you so much for being here and we'll talk soon. All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I was, of course, your delectable daddy host, Andrew Gerza. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening and shining a bright light on disability stories with me. If you want to follow all my work and see all my links and all the cool stuff I'm doing, you can head over to my new website, aagerza.com. And all my stuff is there. My social links are there. My website is there. My podcast is there. Everything is there. And you can follow along with the show that way. If you want to leave a review for the show, please do so wherever you get your podcast. It really does help keep the bright lights shining on this show. If you want to support the show financially and get the show one day early, completely ad-free, as well as a shout-out on the air, consider pledging as little as $1 a month or $5 a month or more by going to patreon.com slash disability after dark. Stay comfy, cozy, and crippled, and we'll shine a bright light on disability stories next time. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Crippling Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2022